We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I have high aspirations to make it further than I did first service. So um, we're just going to dig in. Sound good? You know, we can, you, you, we can get details with each other after service, that kind of thing. So here we go. We study through the Bible together. We love to kind of gather. I love being able to walk through the Word with you. Uh, you get to kind of like cross-check me, double-check kind of a thing, where you can kind of like, okay, what's he talking about? Because you have the same outline I have. You have the, the written Word of God that you can kind of wander, wire, I mean, walk through together. And So what we have in 1 Corinthians 10, because, of course, we're 10 chapters in, and we begin this morning, um, the church in Corinth had sent a letter to the Apostle Paul to address some questions and concerns that they had. So, like today, for believers, believers speaking of those who have been born again through the work of Jesus Christ, they've received the message of the gospel, they've responded with realization. What that means is when they heard that there, there's a need for sinners to be forgiven. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everyone needs this forgiveness because everyone has individual sin. When these people in Corinth heard the gospel that this sin issue was dealt with through the life, death, resurrection, and bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, they put their faith in Jesus and in that moment they put their faith in Christ, they were born again, born of the Spirit. Just as happens today, when we are born again, it's putting faith in Christ, believing that He brings about this born-again experience, and that He then teaches us how to live this new life. Well, in Corinth, like today, the challenge is being committed to God and living in this world. Is that not true? Learning how to be committed to God, just surrender to Him, and when you're born again, what you functionally have said, I, I can't do this. I need you. I'm no longer in charge. You're in charge. That's what lordship and surrender conveys. I'm putting my trust in you. So now you're trying to figure out how do I be in this world and not of this world? How do I live this new life? Because see, these two desires, the, 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 the old nature and the new life, are in conflict with one another. One, the old nature, desires the uh, bodily appetites and, and wants all the time. You have this physical frame. You indwell it. You're living in it. You're, uh, a, you know, a human being. And you see things. Sometimes you want things. You, you taste a good chocolate chip cookie. You don't go, that's enough. I don't ever want another one. You have a, an appetite that's just stirring. And, and now, you, now, now the bummer, I've just been planted that you know, sensory memory in your mind. And you're like, no, mm, I don't smell any fresh ones. You know? But you get it. The bodily appetites are in conflict to this new life because this new life, the life in Christ, desires to please God and to serve Him. Do you see how, as a new believer, there's a, an internal collision that just keeps you from making progress. Maybe some of you, it's been a while since you experienced that, that infancy stage as a Christian. When you were still in this world and trying to sort out what you could do and, and what happens, and, and it's, 
understandable. When we're here and we get saved, we call it, or we're born again, born of the Spirit, we then go over to here. We're over now in this group, and we start going to church and connecting. But we bring a little residual. We little bring a little this into the church. And the church is not meant to, to, to change to fit the world, but rather the church is meant to influence the world, impact the world. So this comes in, and then you're learning how to get it out of there. It's a bit of a crude analogy, but you're going to know what I'm talking about. If, if you go down to Grandview and you step inside the barriers called fencing and you walk the little mounds among the cattle and then you go home and you walk into the house, you have some residual with you. You, you have a little bit of fragrance that's not so pleasant and, and you have to learn to not bring that in. And, and that's our conflict many times. The key is to let the new man drive. I'm, I'm this man physically, but when I have that personal realization, when I come into that relationship with Christ by agreeing I need him, I need his forgiveness, and when that, what God brings, when I'm born again, I'm a new man, a new person. And the key is to let the new person be, be the priority. It, it never works to have two people fighting over the steering wheel, agreed? Let me share with you briefly... Um, my background. Some of you, this will deepen your prayer life. Uh, others will realize God is so amazing, the people he saves. So my friend Scott, who was best man at my wedding, and I was best man at his, were just living the life. And in 1984, he, I'm pretty confident it was 84. Anyway, he, he buys this brand new Toyota pickup. Well, you know, they're only that wide. You know what I mean? It was the bare bones he could afford. Single, there was no extended cab in those days, so just a short pad. And so there's three of us that run around together. Scott, myself, and Eric. Well, we have our motorcycles. We can compact stuff in the back of the truck, but we don't fit in the cab. It's just three pretty good-sized guys. I was the smaller of the two, so how do you do it? Well, we figured out how to do it. So the driver, Scott, shifts against the door. So much that he can't, he's just got one hand on the wheel. Oftentimes, because Eric was bigger than me, he would just shove me into the middle, so I got the middle. So I'm sitting in the middle, and they got to have room for, for Eric. And so what do we do? My left foot runs the throttle. My hand runs the, 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 the stick. His left foot runs the clutch, and he steers. So once you get it down, it's, it works pretty well. It's kind of fun. But you can see it's, it's a problematic because as you're squished in and you're, you're, you're... So when you have one guy, you have a half a brain. When you have two guys, you're down to about a, a third. With three guys, you're dropping below a quarter of combined functioning cognitive capacity. And so here we have three guys in this thing. And I'd be like reaching over and pulling on the wheel. Eric's getting me in the ribs. They're shifting. And, and, and the thing that's kind of amazing, I'll never get a ticket. No matter how much I run that throttle, he'll get the ticket. And so you can see, humorous as it may be, you can, it just doesn't work to have two different people trying to run the wheel, two people trying to drive. Since you have committed your life to Christ, he now teaches you how to navigate the challenges and obstacles and the joys in life. He is the one who gets to drive. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you for your word that you speak to our hearts individually as we've gathered collectively, but you, you speak to us and give us, Lord, what we need in this is our request, that we would have ears to hear what you would speak to us collectively and individually from your word today. We believe you desire what's best for us. We believe you can provide what's best for us. We believe you direct us. We believe that you stir within us and teach us. And because of love, you allow us to make decisions. You don't mandate that we be like you. You invite us to be transformed by you. And so, Lord, teach us how that works out. Show us even today from your word that we may walk according to truth and be a light in this world. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read verses 15 to 22. We're going to come back through and catch some details there. I speak as to wise men, judge yourselves for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, we, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, let's take a look at this in verse 15. We're, we begin this portion with recognizing that we're called to be wise. We live in an extension of the information age, a bit of a communication age, although communication is poor. Nonetheless, the opportunities are there. And in the information age, you, you have information. So think of information kind of like uh, maybe a parallel would be the Internet. So the Internet is a source we can go to for all kinds of information. But you don't just type in something general, you type in something specific, right? You do a topical search. You've narrowed it down because you want knowledge pertaining to a specific thing. So we have all this information, and pulling from the information, we have knowledge. But knowledge in and of itself, is, is gotta, there's got to be the next step. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. So we want to get wisdom, get understanding, and we want to learn how to apply this, how to put this into practice, to exercise wisdom. Proverbs tells us time and time again, get wisdom, get understanding, get knowledge. But as I've already laid out the foundation that there's the old nature, this horizontal plane, if you would, and there's the new nature from above, there's two types of wisdom. In this world you live in, there's, there are certain things that are of this world and they're, they're, they're actual, factual, and true. Certain laws of gravity or science or physics or different things, certain medical truths, certain things nutritionally and bi biologically that are just they're of this realm, they're, they're this way. But see, we also have, as we're born again, we function in this realm, but we have now been 
indwelled by wisdom from above. And this wisdom from above we then allow to permeate the wisdom of this world so we would have proper understanding how to live in this world in the proper way. So let's go to James chapter 3. We'll look at two types of wisdom real briefly. We're told in James chapter 3. Now i got to insert really quickly. You came here today to meet people, to connect with friends, to have fellowship. But your primary reason in this location was to worship God. And perhaps maybe even to, to get to know the God that the Bible speaks of. So as you've, as you've came here and as you've settled in, I want you to remember, I know most of you know this, but, so I, I don't want to sound rude in saying it, but this ain't the theater. It, it, you come in to get homework. Now, I know that wasn't what you'd say. Hey, honey, let's go get homework. But you, you came in to get homework. This is not like, okay, sit to, to show and go. You don't just come in, kind of connect a little bit, and then, you know, go to watch a football game the rest of the day or whatever. The reality is when we come and we, we sit under the word, God will speak to your heart, maybe, maybe from the outline, from the text, maybe from a reference. And, and the, God, the living God, the God of all creation, stirs in you a desire to know more. And your part is to discipline yourself to go dig deeper, deeper still. So when I give you like James chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, we're not going to cover it in totality. But you may want to go in and read James. I'm going to quote another one later in the study, James 4, verse 4. You want to read James 4. You see what I'm saying? We, we, we take this home. We don't just settle in. And I know I, for years, I just, I loved coming to church. I loved the, the worship by way of music, the, the worship of God by the way we give, the worship by the way we serve, the, the worship by study of the word. But I'd go home and be on the next thing instead of stopping and going, okay, there's something I need to take hold of and discipline myself and dig into. So we're talking about wisdom you got a bonus there on the homework thing. No problem. Verse 13 of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Running back now to 1 Corinthians 10, where we started in verse 15, to be wise. We want to be wise in heavenly wisdom as we live in the earthly realm. Now, as we continue in this section, verses 16, even through 22 and on, these verses are what we could call relational reasoning. So, because of your relationship with Christ, reason through... How should I live? Now that you are in Christ, the Bible speaks of, now that you have this new life, how should I live? And he takes the example here as he reasons with them, and he speaks of communion. He speaks of communion that the church participated in. It, we refer to it maybe as the, the Lord's Supper. 
And so what happens is we gather and we practice what Jesus implemented. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he gave us some foundation for, you know, taking the contents of a cup, which represent his blood, and then taking a, a piece of bread that represented his body, and, and we, in reverence and recognition of what he's done, we ingest that. We, we, we take that. And you see, it's actually communion symbolizes the oneness we have in Christ. And so that's what they're saying, and what's being represented here is this communion. Is it not oneness in Christ? It's interesting because those of you who have been studying your Bible and you're, you're digging into some of the language realities of, of the New Testament Greek and such, you may have caught that communion, interestingly, is the Greek word koinonia that's translated communion, which we often see it as fellowship in translation, but here is this, this, this communion, this koinonia, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus' physical body and his body, the church. That's what this text is showing you and me. The breaking of the bread speaks of the literal body of Jesus, and in another sense, it speaks of the body of Christ, the church, the body of believers. This, this breaking of bread expresses our fellowship with the church as the body of Christ. So it's interesting because it should initially primarily be, although we would do it corporally, it's between you individually, me, I would be recognizing what he has done. Remembering, because that's what it says in remembrance of him. That's why communion is actually for believers. Because you have something to remember. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't surrendered to him, a communion service would seem kind of awkward and weird to you. But because you have experienced his forgiveness, you know it differently. Now, verse 17, we see that for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. You see how he has taken and brought together collectively what we do individually. It's Christ's body that was given for us. It was his body that was raised from the dead and ascended physically into heaven. But he's also saying, but there's also this one body reality with all of us. And it conveys unity. The bread of life, and we are his body, the bread of life to the world today. Now, he takes another example, speaking of this relational reasoning. Because you have been born again, how should you live in regards to the things of this life? He references verse 18 as an encouragement. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? This is, I'm pretty confident he has the, the peace offering in mind. Now, all of Israel was invited to participate in the peace offering. It was really connecting them in a very special communion. One aspect of the sacrifice was literally communion with God. You brought in your offering... You know, some of that offering was for sacrifice, and some was for the priest, and, and, and a portion was for yourself. Now, you would take your part, and you'd go back, and you'd consume your portion, and then it was really an idea of peace with God, because you see, you took this portion that was divided, and you have your portion, and you give this portion to God, and so you have this communion, this oneness with God. That's what was being conveyed. 
in, in that culture of the Old Testament um, reference, if you would, but even in Greek culture at the time, this was in Corinth, the idea of communion, of consuming food together was almost mystical in the depth, meaning they seen it this way. When I would eat with someone, or you would eat with someone, and you would tear off a hunk of bread, you would give them that piece of bread. That bread would give them nutritional strength. It would, it would, it would fill their bodily needs, and it would fill your bodily needs. So by way of that bread, you were kind of knit together in a type of oneness. That's why Jews oftentimes wouldn't eat Gentiles. It's not the only reason. But you didn't just eat with somebody... Because you really, you had this thought, like, when we have dinner together, it's like we're, we're tight, we're one together. So it, it obviously made it very interesting, but here you can see, when you're knit together over meal, one with each other, he's saying, just like with the, when they, in the Old Testament, we would call it, Israel, you know, they, they partook of this, that was brought communion with them. Now, we'll continue on, because in chapter 8, he addressed this issue of, the culture of that day, pagan idolatry, where they worshipped things of this world. And so now you see there in verse 19, what am I saying then? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? So we aren't going to have very commonly, very rarely would you see in our culture, a particular carving or statue placed in a significant area of a home to where people would bow down in front of it or spend all their time before it. But that doesn't mean we're, we don't, we're not at risk of idolatry. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And so it maybe has a different form. An idol is nothing in regards to power or deity. And yet, turning away from God and putting the things of this life, pleasure, wisdom, uh, power, security, hope in the things of this age, is putting your hope in the prince of this age. So we can, we can inadvertently, almost not knowingly, because we don't stop and think, we don't notice, Start putting our trust. We start kind of wanting these things of this life. It's, it's not that the, the things of this life are all bad. I think we can hopefully be honest enough to know God created you and me, and he created the earth we live on. He really could have done it pretty straightforward. He could have made it like we all had COVID and couldn't taste anything. He could have made it so you can barely hear only minimal things, very low frequency. He could have made it all grayscale because it's all going to burn anyway. You see what I'm saying? He could have made this a very dull life. But you know his fingerprint expresses his character. His, his fingerprint meaning this world we live in is so it's beautiful. It really is beautiful, his creation. The color, the range of creatures, the, the expanse of life. It's amazing to me. The more I'm out in it, even just in a, in a you know, outside of civilized you know, buildings and whatever, it just it still fascinates me. But it's, the, it's not the things of this life is the problem. Having an interest or enjoyment or involvement in the things of this life, it's not a problem. 
having hobbies and money, enjoyment in this life is not a problem. The problem is when they have you. There's the distinction. When we start living for these things and we're focused upon these things, and if we'd stop and be honest, we'd have to admit the Lord's second. These things are first. What's, what's the difference between having them and them having you? Well, it's, it kind of comes back to what's important to you. You know, when your thoughts and aspirations and efforts are focused on the things of this life, your walk with Jesus is way down the list. We know to show up at church on occasion. We know to do certain things. But we have to be honest, it's really not the priority. We're under the influence of the prince of this age. That term we know, right, in our culture, under the influence, right? Hello? (laughs) Yes, you know that one, right? You can engage a little bit here. Under the influence. We know what, generally speaking, most commonly in regards to driving a vehicle. And when someone's under the influence, there are outward signs. And an officer who sees a a vehicle operating slowly or erratically, he sees this outward sign. And so he pulls him over and does an internal check. What's an internal check? Breathalyzer, uh, perhaps a, a blood test. So there's an outward sign and then an inward check. Well, under the influence of this age has outward signs as well that can be confirmed by an internal check, which is a check of the heart. What's one way we could do a quick check? What are some of the signs outwardly? Think of it this way. This is not meant to be verbalized or spoken out loud. You just process it. How do you define success? How do you define success? See, when we start thinking that through, we start seeing some of our inclinations and tilts are maybe too elevated. Idolatry is setting up anything above God. It's lifting something or desiring something, longing for something more than you long for God. And here's the rub. Here's the, the, the truth that I believe is so, I mean, it's, it's shocking, but perfectly unveiled in this text. Those things we lift up, the idols, the images, whatever. Behind the idols and the images are demonic powers controlling the heart and minds of the worshipers. We may say, well, it's not that bad, it's not that big a deal, but understand, behind all that is a force, is a presence, is something that you may not even want to admit, but just because you deny the existence of the devil, doesn't make him leave here and go to Saturn. You know what I'm saying? He's like, yes, you don't have to admit I exist, no problem. It makes his job easier, actually. Let's continue on in verse 21 and see if we can bring this around. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be living for the world and be in communion with God. You can be born again and have that happen, but you're going to have a deep discomfort. You're going to have a conviction like this isn't right. You can carouse and carry on covertly among your Christian brethren. You can even partake in the practice of the Lord's Supper, 
but you do not have close communion with Christ. That's what we're told. You do not have close communion with Christ. You've been compromised and you know it. Let me give you an example, which I think is very concise and clear. Um, So relate this, because we're working with relational reasoning. Our relationship with Christ and how we are in the world conveys how we are, how we see him. So you're engaged. And your spouse-to-be is kind. They're considerate, affectionate. They're just all around express a loving attitude toward you. you. You enjoy talking to them. You enjoy being around them. Your life is sweet. In time, you discover that they also show these characteristics to another person. You discover they're not faithful to you, but rather they play the field. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? They're just seeing what their options are. They're just out there kind of tramping it up. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but that's what I'm thinking. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're without, that way with others. And it's like, all of a sudden, you're thinking, hmm. Before you discovered their traitorous ways, you were warm and friendly with them. But it gets worse. The people that this person is sweet to actually hate you and are always trying to bring you down. Now your attitude is different. Why? When that person comes to, say, over to your house and you're going to have dinner together and, and, and the guy walks in and you know this about him. Hi, honey. How you doing? Uh, oh, good. And he says, something wrong? Oh, no, nothing. Okay, cool. You know, whatever. And then you multipurpose a frying pan. You can cook with it and you can clock with it. And you multi-purpose this, and he's like, what was that for? Like, what do you mean, what was that for? You notice how your engagement changed? Why? Come on, don't be so selfish. Allow him to express his kindness and goodness to the people around him. You're so self-focused, says no one. Because you realize, man, this guy, ah. You see the picture. We can't claim love and devotion and surrender to Jesus all the while entertaining and enjoying a Luciferian lifestyle. Look it up, Luciferian. It's actually a belief. It's it's literally just like, I'm okay with this. Don't be a fool. You can't be friends with an active known enemy. Agreed? You can't be friends with an active known enemy. And whether you admit they're an enemy or not, you have a problem. And it's the way you're made. What's the problem? You were created in God's image and likeness. And the enemy of your soul hates God. And when he sees a picture of you, he doesn't go cute. It incites hate. So you are really, in a sense, a target. You don't have to worry about the devil. He's got a bunch of minions. You're not that important that he'd have to deal with you personally. But in reality, do you see what's happening in the spiritual fight we deal with? It's, it's a battle. James chapter 4, there's that assignment. Verse 4 tells us friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's literally being an enemy. We're so, we're so con- connected here. Now, some of you, you probably haven't thought of it from this perspective. I know when I first read this, it was, it was shocking to my soul. 
to think that just entertaining some of these things of this world and dropping in on the Bible every so often and considering spiritual life on occasion, it didn't seem all bad. Until I started, I read this and go, that means I'm aligning with the very enemy of God. I, I know this isn't going to sound very pastoral, but you know, you're used to that. I believe this is important, and I do believe it's needed. I believe what's needed among Christians, in many cases, there's a need to experience a glimpse of hell. An experience that awakens us, awakens them to the reality of the spiritual battle we are in. Perhaps night terrors, perhaps a manifestation of a demonic entity, or anything just to scare the hell out of them, literally, when we're not so okay and cozy with the things of this life. Halloween won't do it for most. It's too sweet and controlled. Perhaps a servant of God experience would help us. Y'all want a servant of God experience, right? I mean, I want to be a servant of God. What's a good servant of God experience? Well, let's check one out. Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 6. The man by the name of Elisha, at a time when God brought forth his truth through what we call prophets, men who spoke the word of God. Elisha has got a, an uh, ear to God and a voice to the world. And so he's saying, hey, the king of Syria is going to do this, this, and this. Well, the king of Syria is lit up. He's torqued. Because every time he plans a maneuver... Elisha, through God reveals it to Elisha, Elisha tells Israel, Israel's prepared and the Syrian king looks like a fool. So he's mad. What's going on? His people tell him, it's Elisha, man. He's, got, he's like, he knows what you're talking about in the bedroom. He knows everything you talk about. And so he has a good idea. Well, let's get rid of him. So they come into the city of Dothan, the Syrian army, and they surround it. There's no way, there's no possible way that you're physically going to get out of this problem. So, Elisha and his servant are surrounded, it says in verse 14 of 2, Corinthians, or 2 Kings 6, there he, therefore he sent horses, chariots, and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Continuing in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? It's pretty subdued. He probably said much more like, We're dead. We're done. There's no chance. We're gone. We're, you know, we don't have any hope. Verse 16, Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You and me is all we have in the story, and we have a multitude beyond numbers surrounding us. Your math is off, Elisha. What are you talking about? And notice what Elisha says. Verse 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So here this guy, his servant of Elisha, was able to see what's happening in the world he lives in. Do you know that you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood? 
according to Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So that conveys to you there's a battle going on that our eyes aren't seeing. It's happening around you and me. And I believe there are, it's, there's times we need to be shaken. We need to be awakened to what's around us, that we'll be more in tune with the voice of God, longing more to know the love of God, that we can somehow in this life be the light of God to the world around us. Let's continue on in, to verse 22 in our study at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I believe verse 22 as he speaks of, do we provo- or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Confident that's a reference to Deuteronomy 32. You'll see the correlation when you do your homework. You'll catch it this week. Continuing to verse 16, or actually verse 16 to 22, speak of this uh, unity of the life, the oneness we have as Christ's followers. Um, Our encouragement is to be wise followers of Jesus, to make good relational decisions. Now notice in verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. There's three words I want to focus on there, and that is lawful, which means permissible, possible. There are things that are allowed. He actually quoted this uh, basic phrase back in chapter 6. So he's saying there's things you can do. They're allowed. But notice they're not helpful. Helpful, the word there speaks of they, they don't bring together. They don't bear together. The next word, not all things edify. Edify speaks of not all things um, build up, construct. It, It speaks even of to restore, maybe of people to restore by building up. We live in a time when many things are allowed but not beneficial. Sexual immorality is allowed in our society. It's not just allowed, it's heavily promoted. Various forms of deviancy are celebrated. They're lawful, but they're awful. They tear up people, they tear up lives, they destroy relationships, they undermine society, they ruin the family. I'm not picking on any people group, I'm just presenting a principle that's a fact. It's a historical fact of human existence. They're awful, those things that they're done. Abortion is awful, but it's legal. How did we get here? How did we get here? Not that many years ago, the, the removing of a life because of the, the reality of your sexual immorality, now to remove the life is now accepted and heavily promoted and seemingly supposed to be protected because we change the terminology. We call a life, a child, a fetus. We, we freak, we... we, we mess with all these things and it's legal it's lawful but it's awful it destroys people it destroys families one of the most heart-wrenching things i've dealt with as a pastor is is sitting with a woman and and chatting with her and kim and i will meet with people i don't meet with them women alone but i remember one time we're we're talking with a lady who had been drawn into this deception And she'd been craftily manipulated by people in her life, men, who convinced her 
to end the life of this child. You can't afford it. It's not good reputation. It'll leave the family in disarray. You need to do this. This is an acceptable practice in our society. And she went through with the abortion. And do you know the brutally, the, the terrible thing to that? She, years later, was weeping over the reality of that thing that took place in her life or what she did. She carried that as a heavy weight and a burden the rest of her life. But everybody says it's okay. It's lawful, but it's awful. It tears up people. It tears up society. It doesn't edify. It tears apart. So just because it's legal doesn't mean you should do it. Does that make sense? It's permissible, but it shouldn't be practiced. In verse 24, let, us seek his, let each seek his own, or not his own, but each one the other's well-being. It's the premise. It's, it's the guideline. It's the foundation, the model. Learn to be a servant like Jesus. He didn't come to be served and promote his own agenda. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's our model. To learn not to follow the ways of this world that drag us down, but to be really literally walking in sync and in step with the living God. Verse 25, whatever sold in the meat market, asking no question for eat whatever sold in the meat, meat market. So going back to the question posed by the Corinthians as it was addressed in chapter 8, is it okay to eat food that was presented to idols? Well, remember, an idol as he presented back in chapter 8, is powerless and dead. You know, the, uh, people give it to power and the prominence. It's a figment of their imagination. It has no power of itself. So he's saying, you know, just when someone offers you this, just don't ask any questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and in all its fullness. Just eat it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, would you like a burger? Yeah, great. That sounds good. Okay, here, got sensory memory? Think of a barbecue. Think of a good steak. You have to wait till we get done here. But just, you know, just eat it, he's saying. Just don't make a big deal about it. Now's not the time. Eat the meat. Verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who offered it. Now, track with me on this. If they bring it up, if they say, hey, I know you're a Christian, but we have offered this to what our God, all, this is who we believe is, is, is the creator of the God. This is who we bow to. And so if you could eat of this, we can have unity. We can have ecumenical alignment. We can all be the same because all roads lead to heaven. And so let's unite our faith and call it the same thing. Don't imply to people by participating when they tell you straight up, this is who we worship, this is how we are. Don't imply that we're all the same, all roads lead to heaven. Your God, my God, all gods are good as long as you are sincere and genuine in your faith. You can really be sincere and genuine and stupid at the same time. You can do really dumb things and really think. I feel, I feel, I feel good about it. <laughs> Stop for a minute. The Bible tells you and me that there is one way by which man can be saved. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
No other means can, can man have a right relationship with God. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's the one way that it can be done. And if we imply to people, yeah, we're all good, we all get along, you know, no. If we imply that there's other ways and we're okay with what some people say, I'm not talking about being divisive and pushing people away, but learning how to communicate the hope of the gospel. But if we say it's okay, you mock the cross when you imply all faiths are good. All faiths may have some benefit. There may be some humanitarian relief or something we could see, but they are not beneficial in regards to salvation. When we imply they're all good, you're saying, I'm saying if we imply that, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. There was a back alley that leads right directly to the throne of grace. Do you see what we're saying? If we say everything's okay, it's all good, you know, you just got to let people be who they're going to be, you know, everything gets us to the same place. No, it doesn't. You can be who you want to be. That's you, it's your choice. But it won't take you to the very throne of grace. We're saying he died a horrible death, took on himself the sins of the world, and rose from the dead, proving he is God, and he alone conquered death and hell. Do you see? He went through that because... It was the main route and somebody else could go in the back alley? No, no. There's no way that you can have right standing with God and a relationship with God but through Jesus Christ. Don't gather with the, the things of this world in the sense of saying we're all the same. I believe you should, still should connect. We're told earlier in this letter, he's saying, listen, you, you, I'm not telling you to stay away from sinners because to stay away from the, the sinful things of this life, you'd have to find another planet. You'd have to live, you have to, heavens when that'll happen. So we learn to engage, but not say it's all the same, because it is not the same. And so, verse 28 and 29, or 29 and 30, he's speaking of conscience, not, not your own, but the other. And he's basically saying, why am I missing out? Because they're holding out. Why should I not get to eat? Because that person won't receive the, the gift of life through Christ. Well, here's why, as you continue to look to the next verse. Verse 31, actually, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. My liberty is limited by the law of love. Yeah, I could do these things, but it could hinder or hurt someone else. Best to pass on the barbecue that you may be able to share with someone the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, verse 22, Paul said it this way, to the weak... I've become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That was his priority in his social connection. That he could somehow bring to them, be an agent of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ could shine through him. And so, as we see there in verse 31, it's the key. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whose glory are we living for? Whose glory are we living for? In this world, you will have trials. So you miss a meal. You know, let a rumor ricochet off of you. Absorb the accusation. Hand it all off to the Lord for his glory. Glorify God with your life in all things. We're going to wrap it up. I know I'm a couple minutes over, but let's just kind of move on. Verse 32, give no offense to the Jew, to the Greek, or to the church of God. That are the, that's the three categories, three groups of men on the earth right now. 
the Jew, the non-Jew, and the church of God. Within the church of God, you could have one, someone from, with a different background, but still be a believer. He says, you know, give no offense. In other words, don't, don't try to trip people up. Don't be scandalous. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So the underlying current, the deep drive in a born-again heart is that others would know the Jesus you know. Sometimes we're not so evangelistically minded, but if we're honest, we're not as close to Jesus as we long to be. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to find yourself wanting other people to know what you know. I have no interest in promoting religion. I have no interest in it. I won't even get into all the reasons why. But I do want to present the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want people to know the God that I know. Because then they can make a decision, whether they want it or not, but at least they're going to know. Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. It, it, we, we get our English word mimic from this Greek word a little bit in Latin. So mimic me, copy me. But notice there's a contingency, a, a, a condition. Follow me as I follow Christ. Choose to be an example. Know that you can be an, a good influence in people, but also understand it. it there's just a little condition there. I don't want people following me if I'm not following Christ. The best thing you can do there is bail. Get out of the boat before it gets, sinks. But in reality, you say, well, I want, I want to be an example. Let me give you a quick in review of this text and just some ways that I think remember it. Be wise in Christ. We've seen that from the start. Be relationally honest. You are a new creation in Christ. Your relationship with him is the first thing. Now, that also is important to have application in other aspects of relationships. If you have a friend, know how, that, how to be friendly. If you're married, know your roles and responsibilities within the marriage the institution God's designed. Number three, choose to be helpful. Build people up. Ask yourself before you get in their face, what am I trying to accomplish here? I want to teach them that, you know, they need to learn. Hmm. There's another rule you could find kind of golden treat other people the way you'd want to be treated choose to build people up number four learn to serve in his strength for his glory i want to learn this i am not there yet 30 plus years of, of teaching and, and walking with jesus i feel like i've got so much to learn but that doesn't discourage me i'm excited because i know what he's flushed from me and i'm eager to see what's before me what how how can this even how can i grow even more be eager willing to to serve in his strength for his glory be a christ-like example be willing to be his example in a world that sadly and definitely needs true examples and we're going to leave it with there the worship team's going to come back up lead us in a song of worship and uh, we are going to turn our attention to a closing passage, a verse that I believe capsulates, synchronizes with our study, so to speak. So if you would stand with me, we'll direct our attention to that verse, and then we'll go right into a mindset of prayer, and followed in our closing with a worship by way of music. We see in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. God, thank you for this study today. Thank you, God, that you 
you disturb our hearts sometimes and you uh, invade our minds and you, you make things awkward for us on occasion. We're so thankful you love us enough to do that. That you could teach us how to hold on to you and we would loosen our grip on the things of this life. That we would know how to enjoy what you've provided for us and given to us. But our focus, our worship, our desire would be for you and only you. Thank you, God. And Lord, you know each one of us, you know our desire, you know our struggles, you know our challenges, and we know that you're faithful to complete what you started in our lives. If you're listening to this message today or here in present or or you're listening online, if you do not know that you're born again, if you, the question, if you die today, where would you go? If you can't answer that, go to heaven. If you're uncertain, you need to work that out. You need to understand the gift of life God offers to you to experience this born-again life. It's not about how much you can do. It's about what He's already done for you. And it would begin like this, just a simple, honest um, assessment and realization that you would say, I, God, I know, I know I've done wrong. I know I have sin. I'm I, I beginning to understand that the, the consequences of my sin is death. And, and, and I'm hearing that the you died for my sins, that you paid that death penalty, that you came as a man and then lived a sinless life, you gave your life as a payment for my sin, you were put into a tomb, you were left as dead, you rose from the dead, you ascended bodily into heaven. I don't, I don't understand all that, but I'll hold to that truth. So I agree with you, God, please forgive me. I ask for this new life, Jesus. Show me how to walk with you. Put my faith in you, and I don't even know what that means and how to do it. But I would just trust in you. As an infant, according to what you say, I'm now born again. I'm an infant, and you're the perfect father. Nurture me. Help me. Teach me. Keep me. I turn from the way I used to be, and I, I'm, I turn to you. And God, may that be our petition for each one of us that we would just turn to you more and more, releasing our hold upon this world and embracing all that you've offered. We sing this song to you with joy and gladness, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.